welcome to the 5 by your Quattro weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, John acquires scientific manuscripts with the scholars of the South Tigris. Sarah arranges the animal meals on Food Chain Island. Meeple Lady pushes her luck with a fox and fowl and chicken. And I organize games, books, and more in my shelfie. But first, Jose communicates with the dead in the mirroring of Mary King. One of my favorite things about this hobby is the breadth of experiences that board gaming can provide. There's multitudes of settings and worlds from fantastical to mundane and everything in between. Today's game is a one that struck such a chord with me that I found it really hard to stop thinking about it after I stopped playing it. Today we're going to be looking at The Mirroring of Mary King, designed by Jenna Felly and published by Devious Weasel Games. The Mirroring of Mary King is designed for two players only, and the game centers around the titular character Mary King, who is the descendant of a Scottish Burgess of the same name. While on vacation, Mary gets the attention of her descendant's ghost, which is now attempting to come back and take over modern Mary's body. At the center of the table, you're going to set up a 12-tile portrait of Mary, with each side of the tile representing one of the two forces at play, whether that's modern Mary or ghost Mary. Each player is going to set up their deck of cards and a small market row, and during the game, you're going to alternate taking turns, and on your turn you can play cards or buy cards to play during your turn. There's two types of cards in the game, control cards that help you flip portrait tiles to that of your side, and you also have power cards that give you a choice between two actions that you want to take advantage of to gain more control of Mary. There are certain limitations to the amount of cards you can play in each of the five rounds, and you win by flipping all the tiles onto your side, whether you're Mary or the ghost. Or you can also lose if you have to pay the penalty at the end of every turn and you don't have enough cards in your deck to be able to pay that. Now, mechanically, this game is pretty simple. That's pretty straightforward. There's a few other extra rules, but there's not much more to the game. And this is really just a big game of tug of war. There's two sides exerting their force onto one body in order to take control. And this mechanic goes hand in hand with the theme of this game and really embodies the internal struggle beautifully. This game is more than the sum of its parts. The mechanic and the theme are in lockstep. The game only really has about two pieces of art, which are two portraits of each Mary, and they're done, they're incredible pieces of art by Naomi Robinson. Now, normally I would ding a game for having not a lot of artwork, but this works perfectly for this game. Because you only have the portrait at the center of the game to focus on, it really drives the attention to Mary and the struggle that's happening within her. The deck of cards is called Your Mind, and the discard is called Your Memories, and this basically turns into a game of attrition where the winner is someone who's able to make their opponents run out of mental energy and sensibly take over. All of this is done in a very simple-to-teach game that plays in about half an hour. Now, I've spoken before about how thematic Jenna Feli's games are. I believe the last game of, theirs, of hers that I talked about was Cosmic Frog, which is fantastic. Go check out that review again. Thank you. And this game is not an exception to that statement. This game reinforces a strong theme and a great experience. 
just like Cosmic Frog did, but in a very different way. I've spoken before about some of my challenges with my mental health, and this game is a good metaphor for the internal struggles that felt very real to me. Although the game's actual theme is pretty foreign, it also felt very familiar, and it led to some really interesting discussions afterwards with everyone that I've played this game with. I think this is something that really should be experienced at least once by most people, especially considering how easy and quick it is to play. Speaking of mental health, I would just want to take a second and make sure I say this because sometimes it's something that needs to be said and isn't. There are going to be moments in our lives where you feel torn. You may feel like something is taking you over, and in those moments, I hope that you take a moment and reach out and talk to someone. A friend, family, a professional. There are going to be moments where we all need support, and there's no shame in that. There are people out there that care about you, so please reach out if you ever feel this way. My name is Jose. You can talk to me on X. I'm at SirBearsworth1, or you can find me on Instagram at SirBearsworth. I'm here for you. There's something so satisfying about physically small games that aren't a lot of components, not a lot of table space, shelf space, or a lot of money. They're just a great game. Button Shy Games specializes in this approach with their Wallet Games series of small card games that fit in a small plastic wallet. The Wallet Games I've played are a lot of fun, and conceptually, the series is a welcome antidote to the bigger, better, more, more, more that sometimes feels like it's taken over board games. Maybe we don't need yet another expensive, big-box, table-eating, deluxe-edition game. Maybe we'd have fun with an 18-card game that fits in a little plastic-folding wallet. Lately, I've been enjoying Buttonshy's solo series. These are solo-only wallet games designed by Scott Alms. I think my favorite is Food Chain Island, published in 2020. Did you ever play regular solitaire with a regular deck of playing cards? Back in the day, I used to play solitaire constantly. As a kid, I had a book of solitaire games, and one of my favorites was Accordion, in which you lay out an entire deck in a grid and one by one capture cards by stacking them on top of each other. The goal was to capture the entire deck in a single stack, and while I haven't played in a long time, my memory is that it was really easy to get down to a few stacks and really difficult to get just one. I remember I decided that getting the cards into two stacks was a partial win and was extremely annoyed when I got a partial win in front of one of my parents' friends who rained on my parade telling me there was no such thing as a partial win and if I hadn't won, then I had lost. 45 years later, I say, fie to that person. I don't even remember their name, but they knew nothing about games. In any case, Food Chain Island is somewhat similar to Accordion on a much smaller scale. There's a grid of 16 cards, each of which has a number, an animal, and fun art by Annie Wilkinson. Cards capture adjacent cards of lower value, but there are two catches. First, a card can only capture another card if the value is 1, 2, or 3 less. So you can't just take the 15, the highest value card, jump around the grid capturing everything like a checkers game gone amok, and then call it a day. 15 can't capture 11 or anything below it. Second, every card in the grid has an ability or condition, like move any one card two spaces, or discard any one unstacked card. 
And when one card captures another, you use the ability of the card that did the capturing, the one on top of the stack. Sometimes the abilities are very helpful, especially the ones that let you move cards which you can use to line up your next capture. Some are situational, like the next capture must happen by moving diagonally, and some are downright unhelpful, like the next capture can only be a card that is one less in value. And when you capture, you must use the ability. If you can't, you can't play the card. You do get help in the form of two extra cards, the whale and the shark. They sit to the side of the grid and have one-time bonus actions, like move any one card anywhere on the grid. These are invaluable as you get near the end of the game, and the stacks often end up too far apart to do a capture with the normal rules. For such a small game, there's a lot to think about. Capturing cards in the right order so you don't end up with too big of a gap in the value of your stacks. Managing card positions so you don't end up stuck without a move. Activating card abilities when they'll help you and not when they'll hurt you. Losing abilities when you cover those cards. It's a fun little puzzle. Winning Food Chain Island is defined as ending the game with no more than three stacks. Although, like my partial win that I invented for Accordion, you rank better with two stacks, and best of all, if you finish with just one. Also like Accordion, it's easy to get close. I don't think I've ever finished with more than three stacks. But it's much harder to solve Food Chain Island and end with only one. It took me about half dozen plays to do it the first time, and I still don't get there even the majority of my games. Right now I'm working on solving it without using either of the bonus cards. Haven't gotten there yet, but I will. And once I do, the rulebook keeps the game challenging by suggesting alternate layouts that are more complex than a simple 4x4 grid. Much as Food Chain Island reminds me of good old Accordion, it has a major advantage in its speedy setup. I remember it used to take just as long to set up a game of Accordion as it did to play, longer if I had a bad deal. But with only 18 cards, Food Chain Island's setup is a snap. I can play over and over, and I'm spending most of my time playing, not dealing. Food Chain Island is currently out of print, but there is a reprint on the way. You can order it from the Buttonshy website. They estimate the game will ship in April. Buttonshy's wallet games don't cost a fortune, don't have a bunch of bells and whistles and expensive components and whatever. They cost $12 and they do one thing. And Food Chain Island does it really well. And that's Food Chain Island. My name is Sarah. Look me up on the socials at Ovenall. That's O-V-E-N-A-L-L. Especially if you want to chat about great inexpensive solo games. Then I really want to hear from you. Before we begin, I have to ask you a question. Why did the chicken cross the road? To play board games, of course. I wandered upon my friendly local game store a few months ago and saw this brightly colored, cylindrical-shaped board game on the shelf. It came in a cardboard canister slightly bigger than what you would hold a roll of toilet paper, and it was covered with intense orange and yellow colors, with a retro font style. Chicken! Exclamation point, it yelled. What an odd game. It was selling for about $20. I immediately picked it up. Chicken! published in 2023 by Keymaster Games, is designed by Scott Alms, an art from Carpenter Collective. It plays two to eight players in about 20 minutes. The game comes with four white dice, four orange dice, four yellow dice, eight player tokens, and one very snazzy cloth board that folds up into that previously mentioned tube canister. The dice faces have foxes, eggs, and chickens and blank spaces on them. 
The chunky dice are very nice to hold. The game is pretty easy to learn. On your turn, you may roll the dice handed to you from the person on your right. Your turn immediately ends when you get three foxes. If you get any foxes on your roll, but not three of them, place them to the left, and if you have any chickens, place them to the right. The rest of the dice should be eggs and blank spaces. For every egg, you essentially hatch new dice. You first take a yellow die to add to the pool in front of you. If there are no more yellow dice, then you can take an orange die instead. Orange dice are the riskiest, but also have the most rewards. There's double chickens on their faces. You may roll again, or end your turn to count your chickens, as they say. If you decide to roll again and you luckily skate by without resulting in three foxes, you count all your chickens and score those points. If you happen to hatch an egg during your second roll, grab the corresponding die from the mat. If you happen to bust, then you score zero points and you return all the orange and yellow dice back to the player mat. Then you pass all those dice to the player on your left. So the next player has a choice. Roll all the dice just given to them, which can be a lot if the player before didn't bust, or you can just chicken out. If you chicken out, you return all the non-white dice back to the player mat, lose one point, and then just roll the remaining four white dice. Easy peasy, right? The game's delightful, and seemingly a push-your-luck game. But in reality, you're pushing your opponent's luck by handing them the dice for the start of their turn. When you're seated next to a gambler, more often than not, they've busted, leaving you with just the four white dice to roll on your turn almost every single time. But maybe fortune will smile upon you during your rolls. Chickens is very quick and plays a lot of people, including people who don't usually play board games because, well, you know, everyone loves to roll dice. Is there a strategy to the game? Not really. Does there need to be? No, not for a game this light. It's really nice to look at, especially the lovely mat. And people are mostly engaged in the active player's turn, since everyone wants to see if they bust. It's random, and sometimes you just need a quick filler game while waiting for people, or you want to get one last game in after a long day of board gaming. So you may ask, has anyone ever chickened out at the start of their turn? I've rarely seen it happen. There's no actual negative penalty for rolling all the dice and busting, but there is when you pass on all the orange and yellow dice handed to you. You lose one point. So in that sense, the game fails to live up to its threat. Are you a chicken? Nonetheless, chickens, exclamation point. That's not actually the name, but there is an exclamation point there. Chickens is ridiculously fun. It's a nice addition to your game shelf, even if it is a little odd-shaped. Chucking a bunch of chonky, bright-colored dice never gets old, no matter the type of gamer. And that's Chicken. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on all the socials as Meeple Lady or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. An empty bookshelf. Books, games, pictures, plants, trophies, and cats. Who will fill their shelves in the most pleasing and point-scoring way? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. On the table is My Shelfie, a game by Phil Walker-Harding and Matthew Dunstan. My Shelfie was published in 2022 by Lucky Duck Games, who sent me a review copy. In My Shelfie, two to four players attempt to fill their bookshelf with various items, 
hoping to fulfill secret goals while racing to score public objectives. On your turn, take one to three tiles from the center supply, aka the living room. The tile or tiles must have at least one side open at the start of your turn. Each player has a Connect Four-like bookshelf of six columns that you drop the tiles into. Now, drop your one to three tiles into exactly one column of your bookshelf. They stack on top of each other just like those checkers in Connect Four. You may arrange which one goes first, second, and or third, but once you drop them into your bookshelf, you can't take them out. Play continues until one player completely fills their bookshelf. After everyone's taken an equal number of turns, players score points based on completing public objectives, secret goals, and groups of similar adjacent items. The player with the most points wins. I was a bit confused when I first heard about my shelfie. People were excitedly comparing it to Connect 4. Really? What was going on? But then I saw the two designers' names on the box and I knew there was probably some gaming magic inside. Phil Walker-Harding and Matthew Dunstan, two designers who've created some of my favorite modern board games. Regular listeners of the 5 by know how much I love Phil Walker-Harding games. I've spoken highly of Super Mega Lucky Box and Planted, a game of nature and nurture on this podcast, episodes 124 and 133 respectively. And his games Sushi Go, Baron Park, and Summer Camp are hits at any gaming get-together I attend. I'm also a big fan of Matthew Dunstan. The Guild of Merchant Explorers was one of my favorite games of 2022, and his games Elysium, Next Station London, Village Rails, and others have all been critically acclaimed. Walker Harding and Dunstan have created something special on my shelfie. It's a game that longtime gamers can enjoy thanks to its spatial puzzle and set collection. I love the gamer easter eggs, from the stacks of games you place on your shelves, to the name itself. My Shelfie is a nod to gamers' endless photos of their game-filled shelves. Likewise, new gamers and casual gamers will be drawn to the Connect 4 style play. It's immediately recognizable. Drop tiles into the plastic grid hoping to connect similar tiles. It's a super approachable game that plays in about 25 minutes and can be learned by nearly everyone who's played Connect 4. While there's no direct interaction in My Shelfie, there is some indirect interaction like when an opponent takes a combination of tiles that you are hoping to grab on your turn. But since everyone has their own shelf, there aren't too many pretty sneaky sis moments of blocking or connecting for. The brilliant decision by Walker Harding and Dunstan to only allow players to drop pieces down one column makes for a much more puzzly game. Not only are you trying to be the first to complete the public goals such as four of the same type in a perfect square, or two rows of five different types, you're also trying to complete your own private goal card which has each of the six items located throughout your shelves. And there's a third type of scoring, adjacency. If you can line up three to six tiles of the same type orthogonally, then you'll score extra points. Of course, if you can manage all of your public and private goals and get those adjacency bonuses, then you're well on your way to a high score. Each kind of scoring is easy to understand, yet put them all together and it's much tougher to do, especially with your opponents trying to complete them as well. And not being able to drop them in more than one column at a time creates the perfect tension. You might have all the tiles you need for a goal, but the one column rule forces you to use them in a less efficient manner. No, you can't save tiles for your next turn. You must drop everything into your shelf on that turn. The components of my shelfie made me think of the official Tetris board that was released by Buffalo Games, which was also designed by Walker Harding. In that one, the components failed the overall game. The Tetris pieces often got stuck in the drop-down clear shelf, and whenever you filled in bonus spots, it was tough to see them. Thankfully, my shelfie avoids these problems. Tiles, for the most part, are easy to distinguish from one another. 
While each type is a different color, there's also the different art for each, so it's easier to tell a trophy from a game. As someone with colorblindness, I'm always grateful when publishers take this into account. Instead of just having different colors for the items, the unique art for games, books, frames, and everything else makes it a playable game for those with color deficiencies. Props to Matthew Dunstan, and as we say online to Phil Walker Harding, praise be, my shelfie is a winner. Thanks to Lucky Duck Games for the copy of my shelfie. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on social media at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. In Scholars of the South Tigris, you and your tablemates are competing scholars traversing the world, collecting scrolls to translate for the Caliph. It seems that during the Abbasid Caliphate, the Caliph was very concerned with collecting manuscripts and translating them to Arabic. This tremendous effort at curating and protecting knowledge is known as the Golden Age of Knowledge and Wisdom. Scholars takes as its setting the Middle East during this monumental age, and I love seeing games with this setting. We need more Euro games set in other places than Europe. Not a controversial take, but at this point, one that I will always make. Hi, my name is John Gonzalez, and it's time to take a look at one of my recent favorite games, Scholars of the South Tigris from designers Shem Phillips and S.J. McDonald. Scholars features artwork from The Miko and is published by Garp Hill Games. The game plays up to four players, and there's a solo mode as well. Scholars is the second in the South Tigris trilogy and is preceded by Wayfarers of the South Tigris. The third in the series, Inventors of the South Tigris, has not yet been released at the time of this review. But you don't have to play the games in order, so you can just jump in and play whichever game is handy. Scholars is the second in the series, and what that means is that it's the meat in the South Tigris trilogy sandwich, as it were. And like a sandwich, you can eat it any way you want, even by picking off a piece of bread and starting inside the sandwich in the middle. Uh, okay, this sandwich analogy is not working out, but let's bite into it anyway and talk a little bit about how the game works. In Scholars, there are four basic actions you can do, and they are all initiated by the clever use of dice and cards. On your turn, you will be placing a card from your hand onto your personal board alongside a die or two to take an action. The action slots on your board dictate what you can do. Scholars is a fairly complex game, so I won't be doing a very detailed rules explanation here because, well, I like you and I don't want to subject you to a five-minute rules teach without visuals. I'll paint the game in broad strokes, kind of like a Subway sandwich artist slapping mayo onto some bread, and I'll do my best not to lose you. With your action cards and dice, you are transferring scrolls from the world map to one of the three towers in the Palace of Wisdom. You can also hire translators from the row of available translators. You can translate scrolls that are already in the Palace of Wisdom using hired translators. You can move up on one of the six knowledge tracks and gain bonuses and set yourself up for the income phase. So by placing a card and some dice, you can do an action. And if you're good, these actions play a bigger role in your strategy and put you on a good path towards winning the game. Once you have run out of space on your board, or if you just feel like it, you can rest. Resting has you collect your cards and dice, readying them for your next turn, but not before you trigger the rest phase icons on the cards on your action board. These resting phase icons are read left to right, kind of like how you select toppings at the Subway sandwich counter. These icons can grant you more white dice and let you collect income from the depicted track. So not only are you taking actions with your dice and cards, but you're also deciding which tracks pay off and in what order. This bit of programming your income on top of taking tactical actions while trying your best to carry out an overall strategy makes for a very interesting game. Resting also moves the game towards its conclusion, and every time someone rests, a scroll card from the scroll deck is put out, and when these run out, the game is over. 
At the end of the game, you get points for scrolls you've translated, translators you've retired, and a smattering of other sources, including an area control area in the Palace of Wisdom. So for those keeping count, the game has cards, dice, a rondel, two card offer rows, six tracks, personal player boards, dice bags, pepperoncinis, olives, shredded lettuce, leaf lettuce. All right, sorry, sorry. Those last four are sandwich toppings and not in the game. But I'm bearing the lead here. One of the coolest things Scholars does is use various colored dice and a color mixing system to further color your actions. Players start off with mostly white dice and maybe one or two primary colored dice, depending on the setup. Some of the actions require a certain color. If you're wanting to take an action to move up on the knowledge tracks, for example, you need to use a die in that particular track's color. There are primary dice in yellow, red, and blue, which are pretty easy to obtain, as well as fancier, harder to obtain dice in the secondary colors, purple, orange, and green. You can, however, combine dice to have them count as secondary dice color, like using a red and a blue to make a purple action. You can also use red, blue, and yellow workers to modify white dice and have them work as primary color dice. White workers can also modify the values of dice. Neat. I love this interplay of dice workers and colors. The colors are resources. It makes for such an interesting decision space, kind of like standing at the counter at the Subway sandwich shop and mixing and matching toppings. Except there's no sandwich clerk to judge your choices, just award you points. There's also a solo mode that is fairly complex but works wonderfully smooth once you get the hang of it. If you're a solo player that likes a good challenge, Scholars has a good one. The game can be a bit heavy on the iconography, but if you've played other games in the series, then you've probably already developed the required lexicon. So to wrap up, let's drive this silly analogy home. Maybe board games are like sandwiches. The box and the box lid are the bread, its components and mechanisms the meat slash filling. We might know and be familiar with all the ingredients and be able to list them like a sandwich order. Lettuce, tomato, avocado, dice cards and meeples, worker placement, rondelle, area control but it takes great skill to use these components to create a sandwich that both surprises and satisfies. Shem Phillips, S.J. McDonald, and The Miko have created one heck of a sandwich. For The 5 Buy, I'm John Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The 5 Buy, your monthly source for board game reviews. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at 5 Buy Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash five by games. Join our BGG guild, number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here and want to support our work, visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash five by games. And as always, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.